Well, if you notice, we're a man down today. Uh, several people are out because it's fall break. Uh, but Brother Brian and Kelly are by themselves in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, up there at Honeymoon Haven, enjoying themselves once again, maybe even exploring the aquarium or Ripley's Believe It or Not. And maybe Brother Brian is buying knives and throwing stars as he walks along the strip there in Gatlinburg, even as we speak. No, he's, he's worshiping with us now. But do pray for him. Uh, pray that they would get some rest and time to just rekindle and love one another during this time. And then we're going to be changing places. Next week I'll be gone for a conference and Brian will be preaching. And so I ask again to pray for Brother Brian uh, so that he can uh, prepare himself as he comes and brings you the word. And with that, allow ourselves to prepare for the word this morning. Would you join me in prayer? God, we just submit ourselves humbly before you. We recognize you are God, we are not. And we are dependent, as the scriptures teach us, not by bread, but upon every word that comes from your mouth. And so, Lord, we pray that you would allow our humble hearts to receive your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that we would be a people that would truly understand this declaration. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Impart that to us now by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, this morning, I have the honored privilege to preach on one of the most famous passages in the Bible. This is where the disciple Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. And over my lifetime, I have heard many sermons on Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. But sadly, most have been done poorly. Now, I don't mean to sound condescending or to say that I have the correct interpretation and that all the others are wrong, but when you usually hear someone preach on this passage, their main point of contention is proving whether or not Peter could lay claim to the title of being the first pope in the Roman Catholic Church. This is why I entitled this morning's sermon as Rock, Keys, and Rope, because that tends to be where people place most of their attention in these verses. And I've heard well-meaning people even mess up those topics. The issues regarding the rock, the keys, and the binding and loosing are important, but I want to caution us not to be man-centered as we work through this, but rather focus on the person of Jesus. If we fail to do that, then we will lose the majesty of this incredible moment in history. Therefore, I want to approach this passage in six different sections here. First, we need to look at its context. Second, it's worth noting where this transpires. Third, we need to understand this question of identity here. Fourth, we want to see the manner in which Jesus affirms Peter. Fifth, we need to explain Jesus' charge of silence on the matter. And six, after we take care of all of those details, we need to contemplate what really all of this means. The big picture, if you will. Because that big picture, sadly, is what most people miss. Now, we'll be moving quickly through most of these and spend the bulk of our time on both the fourth and the sixth sections here. But if you will, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Now, I know that you like looking at your text in the bulletin so you can make notes, and I approve of that, but you're going to need to open up your Bibles to see this overall context here, this overview. That's found on page 821 of your pew Bible. Now, while we are in the fourth major division of Matthew's gospel, we need to understand that chapter 16 is a coherent unit in of itself. 
It's related to this question of the identity that Jesus proposes here. Who do you say that I am? Verse tw- or these 28 verses here are an appropriate lead-in to chapter 17 where Matthew presents the magnificent transfiguration of Jesus in all of his glory. But note how the focus here within this chapter is on understanding Jesus' identity and what it means to be the Messiah, the suffering servant. In verses 1 through 4, the Pharisees and Sadducees want Jesus to perform a heavenly sign to prove who he is. And Jesus reminds them that he's displayed, what he has displayed before them already is more than enough. Then in verses 5 through 12, Jesus warns his disciples about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He compares their corrupting influence to yeast, which spreads and permeates and transforms all of the flour. And in a few minutes, we'll see how this relates to the keys in verse 19, as their teaching presents a false gospel. Then we have within our passage this morning, Peter declaring that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one by God foretold to save his people. And immediately after this, in verse 21, we see Jesus explaining the significance of that title as he foretells his own suffering at the cross. And despite Peter's good confession, he becomes a type of Satan trying to prevent Jesus from doing his mission. The chapter concludes with a radical challenge to the disciples to pledge themselves to Jesus exclusively if they would see him in all of his glory. This entire chapter is about seeing and understanding who Jesus really is. It compares the unbelief of the religious leaders to what the disciples must believe if they would follow him. Verse 13 tells us the location of where this occurs. It's in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus has traveled deeply into a Gentile region. Now, this city was situated about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, right at the foot of Mount Hermon. It was largely pagan territory, and a reason for that pagan activity is that one of the sources of the Jordan River issues from a cave near this city, and within that cave, there was an ancient shrine, and when the Greeks came to this area, they dedicated the shrine to Pam, uh, Pan and the Nips, not Pam, Pan, sorry for all my Pams that are out there. (laughs) He called it Paneus, and it was a place to worship these false deities. And in 20 BC, Augustus gave the district to Herod the Great, and he built a temple of white marble in honor of the emperor at Peneus. When Herod died, the area became part of the tetrarchy of his son, Philip. And this man rebuilt the city. He called it Caesarea in honor of Caesar Augustus and added Philippi, which distinguished it from Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast, and of course, honored Philip himself. So there's this great irony here that Peter makes his confession of the Lord and our Lord affirms it in the midst of paganism rather than within the borders of Israel. Perhaps we might consider that Jesus is Lord anywhere and does his work everywhere, not just within certain geographical borders. And it's on this occasion that Jesus asks his little band of disciples questions here regarding his identity. First, verse 13, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, remarkably, this is a title that Jesus has been using of himself within the gospel. This phrase, son of man, is used frequently in the Old Testament. And typically, it reflects the humble humanity of mankind. Hence, David in Psalm 8, 4, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? 
It was the title that God used for the prophet Ezekiel when he spoke on his behalf. For example, in Ezekiel 2, 3, And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to the nations of rebels who has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. But most importantly, it was used by God through the prophet Daniel to describe the messianic figure on whom Yahweh would confer his kingdom. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, meaning the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. Jesus uses this title of himself referring to his human nature, to his role to speak on behalf of God, and as we shall see, that he is the Messiah. It is significant within this passage that he refers to himself as son of man when he asks this question. The disciples seek to give him an honest answer about what they've been hearing. Some thought he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. We saw that Herod Antipas believed that back in chapter 14, verse 2. Some believed he was the prophet of Elijah, whom Malachi 4, verses 5 through 6, foretold would return as the forerunner of the Messiah that somehow in some way Elijah would return before the Messiah actually arrived. And Jesus already said back in chapter 11, verse 14, that John the Baptist was that prophet. And then curiously, they mentioned Jeremiah. Now, this might have been because of the mixture of authority and suffering that characterized Jesus' ministry, much like it did the prophet Jeremiah. But most likely, it comes from the influence of writings found in the Apocrypha. These are extra-biblical books And in 2nd Edra, there is a Jewish teaching that Jeremiah will come together with Isaiah before the coming of the end. And Judas Maccabeus, also in one of his uh, historical works, before his battle with Nicanor, saw a vision of a man who loves the brethren and prays much for the people in the holy city, Jeremiah, the prophet of God. So it may have come from that influence, too. And then there were those who generalized Jesus' ministry as one of the prophets, there were a wide variety of opinions about the identity of Jesus and his role. But Jesus asked them, specifically, the plural you here in the Greek is emphatic, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter speaks up to answer this question, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now remember, there are two Simons within the 12 that Jesus selected to follow him. And Matthew designates which one he is, the the one who would be called Peter by Jesus. We've had glimpses of Simon Peter throughout the gospel. He is a man who is remarkably passionate. In fact, I was telling Brian earlier this week, whenever I think of Peter, Brian's picture always floods up in my mind. He's that man that has that passion that can also make him impulsive in his actions. When Jesus called him, he thought himself so unworthy to be in Jesus' presence that publicly he'd be bowed before the Lord, confessing his sin. When he saw Jesus walking across the sea, he was the first one to jump out of the boat, wasn't he? And a few verses later, he will boldly want to defend Jesus and prevent his suffering. And he is the one that upon Jesus' arrest, he takes out a sword, he cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And when Jesus wants to, to wash feet in John chapter 13... 
Peter wanted to prevent Jesus from that act of servitude, but, but after he agreed, he wanted more. He said, not just my feet, Lord, but also my, my head and my hands. You can see Brian saying that, can't you? Just passionate about the Lord Jesus. It's just like Peter to be the one to speak up at a moment like this. In my mind's eye, I, I can kind of see a certain amount of silence just as our Lord's question was asked. All of the disciples would have contemplated the answer, asking in their hearts, dare we say it? Dare we say aloud who we think you are? These are serious words. And passionate, impulsive Peter dares to say what they were all thinking. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Greek, Christ is a synonym for the Hebrew word Messiah, the anointed one. But Jesus is not just some anointed prophet like Jeremiah, nor is he some mere man as the son of man. Peter is declaring, you are the Messiah, son of the living God. And by adding that last description, he acknowledges there is something distinctly divine about Jesus. He is the figure of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, who receives the kingdom of God. He's the one spoken of in Psalm 110, verse 1, the son of God who was David, or King David's Lord. I say that Peter spoke aloud what the others were thinking because no one else spoke up to deny Peter's words. No one else said, Simon, you're going too far. That's blasphemy. You need to be quiet here. But more importantly, Jesus affirms Peter's confession. He begins by calling him by his formal name. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Blessed is the Greek word makarios. And we need to remind ourselves of the two occasions previously that Jesus used these words, or this word, makarios, with the disciples. The first was the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapter 5. That's when he gave a description of what a citizen in the kingdom of God looked like. Remember? It began with, blessed are the poor in spirit. The second is in Matthew chapter 13. When Jesus told his disciples that only those granted spiritual insight would understand the full meaning of the parables. He said to the 12, Matthew 13, verse 16, But blessed, Makarios, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Which fits this next sentence. Why is Simon blessed? Because he has received a divine revelation. Verse 17, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The term flesh and blood was a common Jewish expression referring to man being a mortal being. Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, he wrote, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Or the writer of the Hebrews, or the letter of the Hebrews, Hebrews 2, 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death. Or a Jewish writer in the Apocrypha wrote, As the green leaves on a thick tree, some fall and some grow, so is the generation of flesh and blood. One cometh to an end and another is born. Jesus is saying, no mere mortal man has revealed this truth to you. Peter, God, the Father himself, illuminated it in you. Brother and sister, how often do you think about this for yourself? You wonder if you are special, if anyone cares for you, if, if God even sees you. If you can see Jesus for who he really is, 
you didn't come to that understanding by yourself. God, the very God of the universe, the creator of all things, he has revealed that to you. Don't you ever say that you're not special. You have this when some do not. Take a second to ponder the grace that Jesus has been revealed to your heart. So Peter is blessed because he's received this divine revelation. Next, the Lord will reveal that Peter will have an honored future. Note that it's in the future tense. He says, I will. Verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus changes his Simon's name to Peter. Now in Greek, that is the word for rock. However, most likely this conversation probably happened in Aramaic, and the Aramaic word for rock is Cephas. And he tells Peter that he will be a rock on which Christ will build his church. Now, I don't want to offend your Protestant sensibilities, but the language here is intensely personal. I think that the rock here is specifically Simon Peter and not his confession. I I don't think it's his profession of faith, like many Protestants want to interpret it. Jesus is speaking to Peter, and the wordplay only works with his name. We also must be careful to note that Jesus says rock and not cornerstone, like we read in Psalm 118, verse 22 earlier. Jesus is the foundation, the solid rock. And based upon his atoning work at the cross, as the Son of God, Jesus will take this caustic, brash, impulsive, passionate fisherman, this weak human flesh, and he will turn him into a rock on which he can build his church. This is the first time that Jesus uses this word that we translate as church. In Greek, it is the word ekklesia. And while it's often translated as church in our English Bibles, it literally means assembly. And the word assembly typically was used to refer to the people of God. Notice here that it's in the possessive. My church, and notice who is doing the building. This idea of building a people springs from the Old Testament. Jeremiah 24, verse 6. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up, and I will not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. Amos 9, verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And speaking of the Davidic uh, Messiah, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Jesus calls this my assembly. Simon, my people are gonna be built upon little old you. And they will be so strong that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gate concept is the idea of an expanding boundary. The gate is moved to show that you have taken over territory. And Jesus says, Peter, what I'm about to build using you will stand up to Satan's domain. It will always be victorious. It will last forever. That is in your future. And in that role, Jesus grants Peter a shared privilege. 
I say shared because while Jesus is specific here with this idea of keys and bindings towards Simon Peter, two chapters later, this privilege is given to all of the disciples in Matthew chapter 18, verse 18. There, Jesus uses the plural you in that verse. In the South, we might say y'all. So what Jesus is saying here in verse 19 is not exclusive to Peter alone. It's for all the redeemed who confess Christ. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So what are the keys of the kingdom? Well, first, we need to make a distinction here between church and kingdom. Kingdom should not be identified with the church alone. The church refers to the people of God. The kingdom refers to God's rule or his dominion. Now, they're closely related, but they're not identical. Just to give you an illustration, when Christ returns, he is going to be king and rule over not only the church, but also those in hell. Typically, keys refer to the authority of the steward within his master's household. The steward has access to the master's home, to his storehouses, his possessions by having the keys. The keys unlock doors that allow access to the master's treasures. So what is this key? It is knowledge of the gospel and its proclamation to others. Peter and the disciples have the keys that grant access to heaven because they have the good news of Jesus that allows people to enter into his kingdom. And we gain understanding about this in Luke chapter 11. Look here. There Jesus in confrontation with the Pharisees, and he condemns their interpretation of the law as they wield it for their own self-righteous reasons rather than showing people their deep need for God. Their interpretation is infectious like yeast. Rather than drawing people towards God, it pushes them away. And he says to the Pharisees in Luke chapter 11, verse 52, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. So Peter is not the Pope. He, like all believers, comprehends the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the son of the living God. And in the near future, he will have even greater understanding of the significance of the cross that takes away our sin and the righteousness that Christ gives us that covers us. That will not only allow him to have the key that opens heaven for himself, it will be that message that will open it for others. Church, have you been forgotten that you have been entrusted with this key? The gospel has been given to you to, to make known the glory of Christ across the globe. All around us are people trapped in their sin. They're trapped in their addictions. They're trapped in their affections for things that ruin them and corrupt them, trapped in their pride, trapped in their fears. And you have the keys that unlock the chains that bind them. We all, all of us, understand Charles Wesley's words, long my imprisoned soul lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, I went forth and followed thee. We understand, don't we, the release from sin that the gospel brings. And connected to this great privilege is this concept of binding and loosing. The, the phrase refers to gathering in what is useful and then letting go what is not. The binding and loosing here refers to what we call entering into the church and then also the discipline of the church.
It refers to our God-given right to make judgments between saint and sinner while on the earth. Those who have the gospel, who have been transformed by it in the power of the Holy Spirit, are qualified to evaluate who is in the kingdom and who is not. Now, to be sure, no human besides Jesus admits a person into his kingdom. Entry is by the blood of Christ alone. However, the church determines who has had a legitimate conversion experience and is allowed and who is allowed into its membership. And it's also the church that determines when someone is no longer exhibiting the traits of a believer and must put someone outside the membership. Now, we'll get into this a little more of the mechanics when we see it in chapter 18. But if you are redeemed, if you have experienced regeneration by the Spirit, then you are granted this special privilege. Now, to some, that might sound a little high and mighty and controlling, especially in a politically correct world. But it's true. The Scriptures teach it. This is why Paul was exasperated with the church at Corinth when they were taking their lawsuits against one another to the secular pagan courts. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. So when Simon Peter vocally confesses Jesus is the Christ, Jesus affirms that confession by granting Simon this honored future among his fellow saints that they will have the gospel message to proclaim to others, a message that allows a means for non-believers, Jew or Gentile alike, to enter into the kingdom. They will have the ability to discern who is in the church and who is not in the church. And Peter gets the privilege in this future promise to become a rock on which the Lord Jesus will have his church built. And that is precisely what we see in this disciple after the resurrection of Jesus. This broken man who wilted under the questioning of a servant girl and betrayed his Savior on the day of Pentecost goes to the temple in Jerusalem and he boldly proclaims Jesus is the Messiah and that the Jews murdered him. And we see him sit in judgment upon Ananias and Sapphira when they lied about their giving to puff up their prestige. He is the first chosen to enter into the home of the Roman Cornelius where he shares the good news of what Jesus did. And from that, even the Gentiles are saved when the key of the gospel is presented to them. He is beaten and he is imprisoned for his boldness. He does not relent and the gates of hell do not encompass him. He makes it his life mission to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. He became a rock on which Jesus builds his church. Peter didn't build it. Jesus built it by his atoning sacrifice on the cross. But Peter gets the privilege and the honor and the glory to, sat, or to, to worship and glorify his Savior with his entire life. These are not exclusive promises to Peter here. They are true to every born-again Christian. And then we have another curious statement here at verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. At this specific moment in time, Jesus' admission of his identity was for their ears only. And he does this for two good reasons. First, the decisive factor in the conversion of men should not be nationalistic fervor 
or sinful messianic expectations, but faith and regeneration. Jesus doesn't want that process to be circumvented. Converts must see the Messiah not just merely as a great leader, but as Savior. Jesus must correct such expectations. Second, Jesus has a strict mission that he is carrying out that leads to the cross. He must follow the plan of his Father. And full disclosure of who Jesus is and what he has done can only come after the resurrection. The disciples were beginning to understand the first of these two aims, but the second, as the next verse show about Peter, completely eluded them. And finally, before we close, we need to think about the big, bigger picture here. On your outline, I entitled this section, The Forest and the Trees. I am told that one of my colloquialisms that I'm fond of saying is, don't miss the forest for the trees. I want to make sure we meditate on what is of supreme importance. Like I said at the beginning, it's easy to focus on Peter and what he receives in this passage. After all, right? We want to know what we get out of this. What privileges are ours? As Peter writes in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Believers, you too are stones that Christ is using to build his church. As one saved by the precious blood of Jesus, no one can snatch you out of his hands, not even the devil. You have the glorious keys to the kingdom. You have the gospel. You are stewards of this precious message. You must guard it, the purity of it, and you must proclaim it. You are privileged to discern who is of Christ and who is not. And one day, we'll sit with Jesus and make those ultimate decisions on the day of judgment with him. Yes, these are all precious privileges. But don't miss why we have them. We have them because Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Without Jesus' work, none of this is ours. So we would be remiss if we didn't turn our thoughts back to the Lord Jesus in this moment. Jesus. Glorious Jesus. Even though Simon Peter boldly declared to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he did not understand the full implications of that yet. He and his brothers only had a partial understanding at this moment in time. They did not realize that Jesus, the third member of the Trinity, very God himself, was before them. Otherwise, all of them would have fallen on their faces before them. This is the one whom Matthew 1:21 first declared he will save his people from their sins. That means we are sinners, rebels that have no claim to ask of God anything. If we have salvation, authority, access to the Father, it is because Jesus, the God-man, mediated on our behalf. He can do this because he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And because he is the Messiah, we who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body by his death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He is the first and the last and the living one. He died, and behold, he is alive forevermore. And by his atoning work at the cross, he holds the keys to death in Hades. This is our Savior. This is our King. He is our satisfaction. We get so wrapped up about popes and keys and church discipline when all of it is about the Lord Jesus. I'm convinced that all of our discontentment and our struggle to understand that life is not about our personal satisfaction, but about our glorious Savior. He is more than enough for us. This glorious King became flesh and blood for you. He died for you. He made a way for you to access him forevermore. Oh, if if Peter and the disciples had understood this at that moment, they would have cried tears of joy. I'm convinced they would have shouted for joy. They would have clapped their hands and they would have pulled out their instruments and sang songs at the top of their lungs. This is Jesus. This is God before us. They are free from their sin. And they can stand before a righteous and holy God without fear because the Christ, the Son of the living God, was before them. And you, dear sinner, has the Father revealed this to you? Is this your declaration as well? You are the Christ, you are the Messiah, and all the implications of what that means. You are the Son of the living God. Do you understand what he has done on your behalf? In a few minutes, we're going to sing a hymn. It's called Jesus Paid It All. How can you stand before a holy and just God, knowing you stand before him as his child? It's Jesus. It's because of these words that he is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. That he paid the sin debt that you owed to God. Can this be your declaration as well? Let's pray. Oh, Lord. I pray that we would somehow <laughs> latch on to this declaration that was made in this passage. That we would see your son Jesus in all of his glory. We would recognize what he has done on our behalf. And Lord, we would recognize that he has freed us from sin, sin that so easily entangles us. That his glorious gospel is the truth that we need. Not just at the moment that we're saved, but throughout all of life, because it's the promise that we depend upon to know that we stand before you. It is the promise on which our faith is active every day and resting in. And so, Lord, we pray you would magnify the Lord Jesus in our eyes more and more. And when Satan comes to us and he tells us you're worthless, I see that sin that you did. You're going to do that again. You know that? When he tries to tell us that 
we've lost our salvation, that we have no access to you, that we should feel shame and never approach your throne again. Lord, let it be our declaration in that moment because Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of God, that we can say, Satan, Jesus paid it all. It's not about me. It's about what my Lord has done on my behalf. Let this be our declaration before you on this day. We pray this in the atoning work of Jesus Christ alone. Amen.